Imagine a lake feeding into a network of rivers and streams, delivering water to a vast forest ecosystem. This water system is the lifeblood of the forest, and the diverse animals and plants depend on it for their survival. Now, think about what happens as these smaller rivers and streams gradually become clogged up by downed trees and dams. Over many years, water slowly backs up until the lake begins to spill over its previous boundaries, flooding all of the lakeside cottages. Further downstream, the lush forest slowly shrivels as the water supply turns from a river to a stream to a meager dribble. Now, think about the right ventricle of the heart, pumping blood into the vast network of pulmonary vessels. When this flow is impaired by tight blood vessels, we see similar downstream consequences of impaired oxygen delivery and upstream development of progressive edema. Today, our patient has pulmonary hypertension, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast made by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is entitled, The Little Ventricle That Could. Time for our minute physiology. Everyone has some familiarity with hypertension of the systemic circulation, but people who have high blood pressure within the pulmonary circulation require a unique array of diagnostic and therapeutic considerations. Pulmonary hypertension can be divided into five distinct groups based on the WHO classification system, related to which part of the heart-lung circuit is primarily responsible. In sequence, group 1 pulmonary hypertension is caused by increased pulmonary vascular resistance as a consequence of multiple factors, including hyperplasia, hypertrophy, intimal fibrosis, and thrombosis of the small and medium pulmonary arteries. Group 2 pulmonary hypertension is caused by increased pressure in the pulmonary venous circuit due to left-sided heart disease. For example, left ventricular systolic or diastolic dysfunction and valvular disease. Next, group 3 pulmonary hypertension is caused by primary disorders of the lung, or chronic hypoxia, that leads to compensatory pulmonary vasoconstriction. Group 4 pulmonary hypertension is known as chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, or CTEF, and is caused by long-standing pulmonary emboli that have not completely resolved. Finally, group 5 pulmonary hypertension is an umbrella group that includes diverse causes such as thyroid disorders, sarcoidosis, and chronic hemolytic anemia. Regardless of the etiology of the pulmonary hypertension, the effect is increased pressures in the right side of the heart. When this occurs slowly, the right ventricle remodels and dilates to pump against increasing resistance. Initially, the right ventricular myocardium can accommodate But when the myocardial oxygen demand exceeds its oxygen supply, right-sided heart failure, or core pulmonale, ensues. So now that we've talked about the basic physiology, let's talk about the approach. Let's also keep in mind that pulmonary hypertension is a highly specialized field of medicine, and much of the advanced diagnostics and therapeutics should be done in close consultation with experts in the field. As you're getting ready to see your patient, you have two primary goals to accomplish. Figure out the etiology and the severity of their pulmonary hypertension. These simple goals require a bit of detective work and keen clinical judgment. The history and physical examination are essential to understand the severity of the disease and develop a differential of possible etiologies. 
Some historical clues that might point you towards a particular underlying cause include a known diagnosis of left heart disease, congenital heart disease, chronic lung disease, connective tissue disease, or past thromboembolic disease. Take a look over their medications and other drug use as well, looking to see if they have taken any weight loss medications or illicit drugs such as methamphetamine. All types of pulmonary hypertension may present with symptoms of right heart failure, including fatigue, exertional dyspnea, peripheral edema, angina, and syncope. However, the presence of these symptoms of right heart failure is often indicative of advanced disease and a poor prognostic marker. First, let's discuss how a more mild presentation of pulmonary hypertension may look compared to someone with more advanced disease on physical exam. Someone with mild pulmonary hypertension may appear generally well with stable vitals and mild hypoxia and tachypnea. Some of the hallmark findings on cardiac examination include an elevated JVP, a right ventricular heave, loud P2 sound, right-sided S4, a holosystolic murmur of tricuspid regurgitation over the left lower sternal border, and a diastolic murmur of pulmonary regurgitation over the left upper sternal border. The respiratory examination may be normal or have findings related to an underlying chronic lung disease or left-sided heart failure. Contrast this to the patient with severe pulmonary hypertension who may appear to be in respiratory distress with peripheral edema, ascites, and hypotension. They may also have a more markedly elevated JVP, louder tricuspid regurgitation, and a visible right ventricular heave with a palpable P2 thrill. After you've completed your history and physical, you might have a strong suspicion that pulmonary hypertension is present and some educated guesses on the underlying cause, but you will need some additional investigations to nail down the diagnosis. Once again, the goal of additional investigations is to 1. Confirm that pulmonary hypertension is present, and 2. Identify the underlying cause. While embarking on the workup, it is important to remember that the majority of pulmonary hypertension is caused by either left-sided heart disease, group 2, or chronic lung disease, group 3. Step 1. ECG and transthoracic echocardiogram. The ECG is a quick and cheap screening tool. If there is no right ventricular strain, it may appear normal. However, it may show signs of right ventricular strain, such as right axis deviation or right bundle branch block. Furthermore, if there is right ventricular hypertrophy, then you will see an R over S wave ratio greater than 1 in V1, and right atrial enlargement is indicated by an increased P wave amplitude in lead 2. If there are echocardiographic findings suggested of pulmonary hypertension, for example, elevated RVSP above 35 millimeters of mercury, septal bowing, tricuspid regurgitation, or underfilled left ventricle, assess whether the pulmonary hypertension may be secondary to left heart disease. If there is strong evidence of causative left-sided heart disease, such as a severe diastolic dysfunction or severe mitral regurgitation, Consider treating them for the left-sided heart condition and reassessing with another echocardiogram afterwards. Step 2. Serologic tests. This can be done concurrently with step 1. These tests are guided by the patient's overall clinical symptoms and risk factors and can help rule out potential causes of pulmonary hypertension. The important initial serologic tests include, but are not limited to, liver function tests, HIV tests, and screening rheumatologic tests. For example, anti-nuclear antibody, 
and if indicated, rheumatoid factor. Step 3. Pulmonary function tests and a non-contrast CT scan of the chest. Pulmonary function tests are needed to assess the presence and severity of underlying lung disease. Patients with pulmonary hypertension will generally have a decreased carbon monoxide diffusion capacity, or DLCO. There may be additional abnormalities, suggestive of obstructive or restrictive lung diseases. Generally, an underlying lung disease needs to be quite severe before it causes significant pulmonary hypertension. Non-contrast CT can allow visualization of processes such as interstitial lung disease or emphysema that may contribute to pulmonary hypertension. Step 4. VQ scan. A VQ scan is highly sensitive and specific in the detection of CTEF. If positive, a CT angiogram may also be required to characterize the clot burden and plan for an endarterectomy. Step 5. Right heart catheterization. This is the diagnostic gold standard and necessary for confirmation of pulmonary hypertension. The diagnostic criteria include a resting mean pulmonary artery pressure greater than or equal to 25 millimeters of mercury, a pulmonary capillary wedge pressure less than or equal to 15 millimeters of mercury, and pulmonary vascular resistance greater than or equal to three wood units, a pulmonary capillary wedge pressure greater than or equal to 15 millimeters of mercury, suggests that there is left-sided heart disease contributing to the pulmonary hypertension. Vasoreactivity testing using a short-acting vasodilator during the right heart catheterization should only be completed in patients with suspected idiopathic, hereditary, or anorexinogen-related pulmonary hypertension. If a patient is found to be vasoreactive, then their pulmonary hypertension is more likely to be responsive to calcium channel blockers, which is a very good prognostic marker. At this point, if an alternative etiology has not yet been identified, the patient may be classified as having group 1, pulmonary arterial hypertension. By now, many of the major questions in the puzzle have been answered. Take a deep breath because the management of pulmonary hypertension is complex and dynamic. We stress the importance of diagnostic workup because it is essential to determining treatment options. All individuals with pulmonary hypertension may benefit from a few initial therapies. If there is evidence of right heart failure, diuresis should be initiated. Supplemental oxygen may be beneficial in those who have chronic hypoxia, and especially in those with group 3 pulmonary hypertension. Anticoagulation is considered in patients with idiopathic, hereditary, and aneurexinogen-related pulmonary arterial hypertension. Exercise and routine vaccinations to influenza and pneumococcal pneumonia are also essential. Treatment of group 2, 3, 4, or 5 pulmonary hypertension is directed to the underlying etiology. For example, optimizing a person's COPD or diastolic heart failure may be crucial. In group 4 pulmonary hypertension, secondary to chronic thromboemboli, surgical and arterectomy can be a cure for the condition. Treating group 1, or pulmonary arterial hypertension, has its own unique approach. Since the causes of group 1 pulmonary arterial hypertension generally do not have very effective treatments, we try to open up the pulmonary vasculature using a variety of vasodilators. We try to open up the pulmonary vasculature using a variety of vasodilators. Patients should be referred to a specialized center to tailor therapy, but we will provide an overview of the types of medications that may be used. Guanylate cyclase stimulants, such as Riosigat, and PDE5 inhibitors, 
such as tadalafil and sildenafil, both increase nitric oxide and vasodilate the pulmonary vessels. Prostacyclin pathway agonists, such as epoprostenol, treprostenol, and selexapeg are advanced therapies for severe pulmonary hypertension that also cause pulmonary vasodilatation. Endothelian receptor antagonists, such as ambristentin, bosentin, and mastentin, decrease proliferation of the vascular endothelium. In a patient who was found to be vasoreactive during right heart catheterization, calcium channel blockers may be a good first-line treatment option. Calcium channel blockers, for example, diltiazem and long-acting nifedipine or amlodipine, cause pulmonary and systemic vasodilatation, but may not have a sustained response. As the disease severity increases, people may require continuous intravenous infusions of prostacyclin agonists, such as epoprostenol. Finally, some patients with severe refractory pulmonary hypertension may ultimately be considered for lung transplantation. Today, let's spend our Medicine Minute discussing one of the biggest updates from the 2019 World Symposium on Pulmonary Hypertension. There is now a new recommendation that the resting mean pulmonary arterial pressure required for diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension should be reduced from 25 millimeters of mercury to 20 millimeters of mercury. The former measure of 25 had been used since 1973 as a somewhat arbitrarily designated conservative threshold that aimed to prevent overdiagnosis and overtreatment of pulmonary hypertension. Newer data has shown that a lower threshold of 20 mm per mercury still discriminates between normal variation and abnormal physiology when combined with the other criteria of pulmonary vascular resistance of greater than or equal to 3 wood units and a pulmonary capillary wedge pressure less than 15 mm of mercury. Furthermore, recent studies have also shown that individuals with amine pulmonary arterial pressures between 20 and 25 mm of mercury often already have exertional dyspnea and tend to progress to severe pulmonary hypertension over time. Although there is not yet prospective data suggesting that treating patients in the intermediate zone between a mean pulmonary arterial pressure between 20 and 25 improves outcomes, these patients should be monitored more closely for disease progression. Since lower thresholds for diagnosis means that more patients will be diagnosed with pulmonary hypertension, it is all the more important that general respirologists, internists, and other medical professionals have a solid understanding of the core principles of its diagnosis and management. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled The Little Ventricle That Could. This episode was written by Samir Kushwawa, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. John Thenganat, respirology, and Dr. Gillian Spiegel, general internal medicine. Episode recorded and produced by Zara Morali. The Internetwork series was created by Dr. Allison Lai and co-developed by Dr. Zara Morali and Dr. Leah Karanopoulos, overseen by Dr. Daniel Brent Vegas. Music by Laxman Zavantha Mohan. Please check out our website, www.theinternetwork.com, for an associated pulmonary hypertension infographic. Please also like and subscribe at wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Internet Work, and we hope to see you again soon.